Welcome to Cultivating Curiosity, where two extension agents with UFIFIS Extension explore the world of horticulture and quench yours and our thirst for knowledge. My name is Alyssa Vincent. And I'm Taylor Clem. Join us each month as we delve into fascinating topics in the world of plants and cultivate our curiosity. Hey, Taylor. Hey, Alyssa. I got a question for you. <laughs> Ooh, what? If you were an insect, what would you be and why? Oh, man. Um, I think I would be a mealybug destroyer. <laughs> Just because it's like, it, in its larval form, it looks like a giant mealybug, but it like consumes them in vast quantities. And then when it grows up, it's a pretty little ladybug. So it's nice. like... It's great. Yeah. I, I can go in with Mealybug Destroyer. How about That's you, Taylor? For me, oh, I don't know. It's a toss-up. I love I love lightning bugs, you know, fireflies. Mm -hmm. I just think that's mm -hmm. the coolest little thing. Like, the little beacons of light just flickering through the woods. It's just super neat. But I think right now one of my favorite ones is Akedadid. Oh, Which some yeah. people are like, oh, Akedadids. You know, it's like, but the reason I think Akedadid is because, like, recently... I was just out with my boys and my son runs up to me and goes, dad, dad, I found a bug. Come look. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's go look. And he, he pulled and showed me, he pulled out from between cushions of a seat on a patio. <laughs> <laughs> this giant Florida did. And like, he was so pumped to see it. He was so excited. And, and you know, seeing his excitement looking at the Katydid was just fantastic. And I was like, oh, you got to love these moments. So anyway, it's a bug that looks like a leaf. I mean, yeah, exactly. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like there's an episode of Bluey, if you've ever seen Bluey, where like there's an episode where they just stop and watch a leaf bug, like, you know, yeah. just for like yeah. a hot second <laughs> to slow down. But, um, but anyway, so... Here we are, we're talking about insects, mm -hmm. you know, but um, that's relevant to today's conversation because we have Adam Dale. Dr. Adam Dale is going to be speaking with us today, and he is a uh, an associate professor in the entomology and nematology department at University of Florida. Yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation because not only are we going to get to hear about some of the insects that we find in our landscapes and that impact our plants, but also how some of the relationships and decisions we make in our landscapes can impact those insect populations. Uh, I think that, you know, Adam really has a lot of fascinating work going on related to how humans really interact with the built environment and, and make it either, you know, detrimental or hospitable to our, our insect neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that, you know, we kind of reinforce in the, like these types of discussions as extension agents as well, um, as well as the conversations that we'll have with uh, Dr. Dale is really insects are more than just a pest. They're mm -hmm. such a valuable um, integral part of our entire ecosystem and environment. And looking at what an insect is through a different lens benefits all of us. Absolutely. So I'm really excited to have um, to have him come and speak with us through the online studio. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. What are some of the big things that you think that we want to kind of ask him as part of this conversation? Well, I'm really fascinated by how plants and insects have co-evolved and some mm -hmm. of the some of the ways that they rely on each other. Um, but also, I think just generally, like, how are our insects doing? Are they okay? Do we need to worry about them? Yeah, that's true, because we do hear a lot in the news about, you know, declines of pollinator species. And it would be really nice to kind of hear it you know, from somebody who knows and kind mm -hmm. of just see if there's more information, what's being done, or even what can we do? Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm really excited about this conversation. Me too. Adam, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Alyssa and I wanted to talk with you because we were really excited to kind of think about what is the role that insects play in our environments, in our ecosystem. And we both immediately was said, let's talk to Adam. Let's see what he has to say. <laughs> I'm glad I'm the first person that came to mind. <laughs> it could be a good or a bad thing, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, So 
one of the things that we want to do as part of this discussion today, or one thing that we always do whenever we're having an interview or talking with somebody, is we just want to learn a little bit about who you are and what led you to what you're doing now, because that's such va- that's so valuable in how we tell our story, because that impacts our decisions as well as kind of like the research and stuff that we've been doing or that you've been doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, so so now I'm an associate professor in the entomology and nematology department. Uh, I never would have imagined that I'd be doing this uh, even like <laughs> 10 years ago. I, I wouldn't have ever imagined that because uh, I was always like the average student in school and struggled <laughs> on a regular basis. Uh, so yeah, it, it was it's pretty wild to me still. Um, so I grew up in North Carolina. Um, I've lived in the southeastern U.S. my whole life. Uh, but as a kid, I was always outside and always interested in science. Uh, really, like for starting out, like doing experiments in my bathroom when I was, I don't know, like eight, creating like <laughs> mixtures of any kind of. Uh, liquid that was under my bathroom sink. Oh gosh, you're a mad scientist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so I always had an interest in being a scientist in some form. Um, my aunt, my dad's sister, was a career uh, research scientist at the National Institutes of Health up in Maryland. Oh, cool. Um, studying infectious diseases and epidemiology. So. From an early age, I was like, oh, I'm going to be like her. I'm going to be like Aunt Jan. Um, And that was kind of my trajectory that I was set on doing. And so went to college to study biology at North Carolina State University in Raleigh in North Carolina and started doing that. And as I took more classes, uh, I kind of started to question whether or not I really wanted to study human biology. Um, And the summer after my sophomore year, I wanted to stay in Raleigh for the summer. I didn't want to go home, Mm -hmm. live with my parents. So my roommate brought home a little flyer that he found on a wall outside of one of his classrooms. And it was like an hourly job to count insects on ornamental plants, uh, <laughs> basically like insecticide trials, just counting yeah. bugs. Mm-hmm. And it sounded awful, but I was desperate for, <laughs> um, desperate for a job. I didn't know what entomology was, never heard of entomology, but I applied for it. And that turned into like a four-year research technician job. And that turned into graduate school opportunities. Wow turned into a PhD. And then now I am in that position looking for my own undergrads to, to work in my lab and hopefully set them up for opportunities and changing their career trajectories. That's really cool. Yeah, I always like cool. to think of like those, those moments that we have in like our past that kind of led to like this distinct moment changed my trajectory mm-hmm. and that moment for you is your roommate came home with a job flyer yeah <laughs> and that like changed everything it's like that's such a cool that's a neat really like cool moment you know that that's created that change um that led you to what you're doing now yeah that really opened my whole world up to to the field of entomology which was completely foreign to me at that time um, so what is entomology? I mean, let's let's talk about that really br- briefly, because, you know, there's a lot of people that may hear that word. Um, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, a reference. Uh, but the what is so like you're in the Department of Entomology and Nematology. What? What is that? I mean, that was a term that you didn't discover until you were in school. So what what do those ologies mean? Yeah, and, and whenever someone asks me what I – people find out I'm a professor, so they assume I teach something, and then I ask me what I teach, and I tell them entomology. And it's like 50-50 whether or not they really know what, I, what that means. Um, most of the time they pretend that they know what it means. <laughs> like, not? Oh, sure, sure. Yes, okay. <laughs> so usually I just say – 
I study insects. Um, but so entomology is really just the study of insects and arthropods um, and the way they interact with their, their environment, the way they have evolved and their connections with the natural world. Um, nematology is the study of nematodes, which are incredible organisms, uh, really the most um, abundant organisms on the planet, but they're microscopic. Um, teeny tiny. Teeny mm -hmm. tiny little worms swimming mm -hmm. around in our soils, uh, but providing all sorts of value. Some of them are pests, but a lot of them are really valuable to have. Uh, I remember so that's entomology and nematology. Weird words, but really present in everyone's lives. That's cool. I I remember I had a I had a professor at one point who said to me that if you could take all of the other stuff away from the soil, you would still like have the crust of the earth because there are so many nematodes in the soil like the like you wouldn't significantly change the mass because it's just like it's nematodes <laughs> yeah i believe it um yeah nematode nem nematology in general is a really still kind of a foreign discipline um to me especially but there's a lot of unknowns in nematology and here at the university of florida we have uh one of the largest groups of nematologists in the country um or in the world but we're still relatively small because it's a very specialized discipline. So something that's interesting, something that you said, and actually our previous two guests have said, and I know Taylor and I have talked about this as well, is that one of the things that seems to be common among our experience and how we've ended up where we are is those moments of being in the outdoors, like growing up being outside, engaging with the outdoors. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we all kind of gravitate towards different aspects of, of that experience. Um, but I think that one of the key components there is that everything is interrelated. And so for us, you know, we're, we're mainly a plant focused podcast, um, and we work in horticulture, but we understand that you can't, understand horticulture and not understand insects too. So can you describe some of those kind of common insect plant relationships? Yeah. So I, you're, you're exactly right. I, one thing I always tell my students is you can't really understand entomology. Well, you can't understand plant feeding insects without understanding horticulture to some degree. Um, so most of my graduate students who come through my lab minor in horticulture um, or take at least some horticulture classes so that they get exposed to the plant world because plants and plant feeding insects are so inter intimately connected. <clears throat> um, so yeah, there, where to begin? There's all sorts of uh, relationships with plants and insects. Um, really, I think at the most fundamental level, if we think about nature and the ecosystems that surround us, plants are that foundation upon which everything builds. Really, mm -hmm. the soil is, but we're not talking mm -hmm. soil here. That takes us whole. <laughs> we'll talk to a soil uh, scientist soon. <laughs> <laughs> but if you think about uh, any insect that you might see flying around in your yard or around us, you think about birds, you think about snakes, um, these food webs, everything that eats another animal, in pretty much every case, that comes down to the plant. So you have a plant. A plant feeding insect, something eats that plant feeding insect, something eats what ate that, and so on. Um, and so really these food webs and these different levels, these different trophic levels from plants to plant feeding insect to insect feeding insect, all the way up to bald eagles, um, are that's that's the, the way things move through nature. Um, and so you, you've really got to understand plants to understand plant feeding insects. Uh, and there's so many relationships between plants and insects too, that if you want to help, if you want to understand plant problems and be able to grow plants or 
produce plants or maintain plants, you've also got to understand their interactions with things that might feed on them. So one of the things you said reminded me, I listened, um, I don't remember what it was recently, but I listened to something recently that was talking about these um, mites as a species of spider mite that actually lives um, with a certain plant species. And the plant has evolved to have like a little tiny house for the mite on its leaf. Um, and, and I was so fascinated by this. And I wonder, like, do you know of any other just like crazy, like insect plant interactions like that, where there's like this plant evolved like a little, it's a little mite house on its leaf <laughs> for the mite. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> that is cool. I, so I don't know if this is the exact example you're talking about, but, uh, if you just pluck a oak tree leaf, like let's say it's some, some species of red oak. If you pluck a leaf off and look at the underside and look at the leaf venation, where those, uh, fuzz? yeah, the fuzz between where those leaves or between where the veins depart one another, those are, uh, called domatia, leaf domatia. And those are little hangout spots for predatory mites, um, and beneficials. They're like little guard houses. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so there's all sorts of really cool co-evolutionary histories between insects and plants. Um, we've been doing, I'm, I'm by no means an expert in chemical ecology, uh, but there are a lot of cool relationships uh, that are chemical relationships between plant feeding insects and their host plants. Um, we mentioned monarchs and milkweed earlier. Another really cool example that's similar to that are with cycads. <clears throat> um, so in Florida, we've got a bunch of cycads that are used in the landscape. Um, but cycads are also very highly defended plants. Um, mm -hmm. They're very toxic plants to things that want to eat them. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some insects that have co-evolved with cycads to feed on them, just like monarchs and milkweed. Mm -hmm. um, and with coon so coonties or coonty palms mm -hmm. that are like a ubiquitous landscape plant in Florida now um, are a host plant for a butterfly that's endemic to South Florida mm -hmm. that was thought to be extinct at one point in time. The Atala? Right? Yep, the Atala. Yeah, yeah. the Atala yep. butterfly. Uh and for me, that's a really cool example of how, or a benefit of, of horticulture and ornamental plant trade and urbanization because uh, coonties were harvested and used for various things and to the point where the Atala butterfly was thought to be extinct because its only host plant was used up. But then we started planting coonties all over urban and residential areas and now this butterfly has rebounded and is even sometimes considered a, a pest by some people <laughs> um but i think it's a cool relationship because that butterfly is able to sequester the the defenses within that plant and use them to defend itself they're, they're amazing we have a huge population of them here in Bradenton in our downtown area um, we've got tons and tons of Kunti and they um, they aggregate their little cocoons so like all along the Kunti frond will be like 20 cocoons all the Atalas they all aggregate like on the same frond and then I have to say it's a good thing they're poisonous because these little butterflies have such fat abdomens and little tiny wings <laughs> <laughs> they just like they don't fly very far very fast I'm like you're a perfect little snack <laughs> just like funny. the caterpillar from a bug's life it's like yeah. this big old caterpillar with these yeah. tiny little wings like yeah. This butterfly. yeah <laughs> so this brings up like a really cool like I don't know. It's important for us to talk about because we see these insects that, that like as pollinators for a lot of our plant species, whether it's for pollinators that we need for agriculture, 
you know, for food production. Um, but those different types of ecosystem services that we provide, like helping the like diversity of plants within environments uh, by helping spread genetic material all around. Um, but I think it's important for us to talk about is, you know, just are, are we allowed to have insects in our landscapes? Because <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of times that we get that question of, you know, what is this insect? What do I spray to kill it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. So one thing that I, I like to do when I'm whenever I'm giving presentations to groups around wherever I am, uh, if I'm talking about biodiversity conservation, or if I'm talking about pest management, one thing I always start with is um, pointing out that insect plant pests are, 100% of insect plant pests are herbivores, they're plant feeders, but 99% of herbivores are not plant pests. Pretty much any, plant feeding insect that you're going to come across in the landscape is not a pest, uh, but we tend to be most familiar with those that become pests. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, plant feeding insects are essential pieces of our ecosystems and plants and insects have co-evolved to tolerate one another. Um, it's, it is a bit of an arms race, but <clears throat> they, can tolerate being fed on by these insects um, and the insects require those plants to complete their development and reproduce but there's no harm being caused to those plants uh, unless you do see these incredible outbreaks of various insects but again those are special cases um, so I, it's it's essential to tolerate the presence of plant feeding organisms um, being familiar with Kind of your your list of common culprits is is really useful and important, um, but also being able to step back and say, okay, that's a good thing to have on these plants. Um, it's not going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's where like a lot of discussion we have with homeowners because, like you've mentioned, is like what what leads to like these outbreaks, these instances of insect outbreaks in our landscapes that mm-hmm. make people kind of like, oh no, you know. I found a tremendous amount of aphids on my milkweed or, you know, whatever the insect pest might be. I love um, their squishy little pear bodies. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> <laughs> and their feeding look like they're doing like a little head stamp sometimes. Yeah. I've, uh, I, um, I think it's important that we, like we mentioned and you kind of you, you kind of mentioned this, Adam. Is a lot of times that we see like these uh, abundance of insect pests or pests on our plant material, a lot of times it's related because maybe something else is stressing out that those plants. So, yeah. So maybe it's not necessarily, you know, plants have the ability to withstand it, but maybe when we're looking for a solution to managing some of these pests that we might see in the landscape, maybe it's not necessarily the go to the herbicide or sorry, herbicide, go to the, uh, insecticide. Um, use, but maybe it's more of a, what can I do to help improve the condition of the space? Right. Yeah. So pesticides are an easy, easily understood and easily implemented solution. Um, But almost every time you have a pest problem, the reason that those plant feeding insects have become a pest is that plant was put in a spot where it is not um, adapted to do well, or it's put in a spot where, uh, the insects feeding on it can take advantage of specific conditions, or you're not providing that plant with enough water. Um, it's almost every case an environmental condition that that plant's been plugged into and then set up to have pest problems. Uh, so in a lot of cases we resort to pesticides because, we can't do a whole lot about it unless we replace the plant or, or change the landscape. And we, we oftentimes inherit situations where plants have been put in places that they shouldn't be put. Um, but in other cases, we can do like simple changes to the way that plant's being managed or the conditions that that plant is experiencing 
and kind of flip the scales to where that plant can then defend itself, tolerate plant feeding insects, and those insects don't reach crazy high densities. I always like to joke that um, when a plant is stressed, like in my classes, it's like when a plant is stressed, you might as well have like a big neon light above the plant that says all you can eat buffet to help like, <laughs> because it'll attract all the pests that you don't want into your yard or mm-hmm. allow that population to flourish. <laughs> yeah. And in a lot of cases, um, we've also, so I've also done research looking at uh, other drivers that might influence that. And really it always comes down to when we're looking at plants like ornamental plants or trees, shrubs, anything that we put in an urban or residential landscape. um, A lot of times we see these crazy pest outbreaks that are just recurring and you can just anticipate seeing those pest problems. Um, It's linked to plant stress, but there are also a subset of plant feeding insects that can just take advantage of those conditions. So for example, um, scale insects on lots of trees and woody plants, uh, when, when you put them on a plant in an urban landscape, they reach 200 fold uh, densities compared to the same plant and same scale insect species in a natural area. Um, and the research we've done has shown that that's largely because these urban landscapes are hotter and the plants are more generally more water stressed. So they're, they're, they're experiencing these drought conditions and those things combined result in insects that lay more eggs, they develop faster um, and they just have a competitive advantage. Um, And insects are ectotherms. So just like, in South Florida, when it gets cold and the iguanas start falling out of trees, <laughs> insects take advantage of these temperatures. So when it's really warm, they their metabolism speeds up and they start producing more offspring, developing faster, surviving better, and so on. So it comes back to the built environment in many cases. Yeah. I often think about, you know, when we look at a landscape, oftentimes there are like six plant species in a landscape you know, six or seven, maybe there's one tree. <laughs> Usually it's a palm. <laughs> um, and, and this is, you know, it, it's not necessarily a problem in of itself, um, but it speaks to, I think, a system that is out of balance, right? My, my background's in ecology. That's what my master's is in, is in ecology. And so when I, when I think about our, our landscapes, I, I see, when we have stress, when we have heat, when we have pest, right? We're, we're looking at a system that's out of balance. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think a lot of people are unaware of are the relationships between kind of beneficial predatory insects and those pest insects. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of our, our beneficial predators? Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love talking about, uh, predators, parasites, um, pathogens (laughs) and if you can just like take a minute and sit down outside and watch various insects you'll see it's like sitting down and watching national geographic just at a at a small scale when you're does your inner dialogue does it just sound like david attenborough when you're watching that yes yeah it's like it's like the the lion chasing down the elephant and yeah. jumping on it uh, but instead it's a, a lacewing larva chasing down a aphid and sucking its insides out um so cool but so so yeah there's all sorts of stuff out there eating eating plant feeding insects and regulating their populations so there's really like so not to get too uh, academic, I guess, um, but there's kind of these two schools of thought historically. One is these plant feeding insects are kept in balance by predators and parasites, and that is kind of what drives population control for mm-hmm. plant feeding insects and why we tend to not see outbreaks of plant feeding insects in nature. Um Another thought is that it's kind of a bottom-up regulation driven by the plants and their defenses and their ability to 
to tolerate things. Um, ultimately, it's a combination of those things. As uh, is everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, there's a, there are so many things you can do in a, in a residential landscape or in an urban landscape to help give those predators and parasites uh, an advantage. So, for example, having flowering plants. Mm-hmm. Sure, it attracts pollinators and all sorts of bees and things, but a large percentage of those things are wasps. Solitary wasps, not something that's going to come sting you like a paper wasp. But oh, yeah, ow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can, you can, if you were to follow one of those wasps that came and visited the flower, if you were to follow it after it left that flower, it probably is going to go snatch up some caterpillars and take it back to its little cavity where it's laying eggs, stuff those things in those cavities and seal them off in there to die. And be eaten alive. <laughs> um, this should be like a Halloween episode. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so if you think about, if you think about uh, films like alien. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, yeah. That happens. Like parasites. Yeah. Yeah. That happens yeah. every day to aphids. Uh, <laughs> That's right. A wasp, That's right. A wasp comes, finds an aphid, basically stings it in the abdomen. When it does that, it lays an egg inside of it. That aphid continues feeding and doing its thing, but slowly starts to have its insides eaten um, by this larva that has just been impregnated inside of it. Um, and then the aphid turns into this brown, crusty mummy because it eventually gets overtaken and is not able to, to continue doing its thing. And then a wasp emerges from that aphid, cuts a hole in the side of its body and flies out and then goes and does it to other aphids. Um, that's so awesome. It's incredible. <laughs> that's so cool. Yeah. It's, a, it's like something that sounds so science fiction when you think about it, but it's like, yeah. no, it's not science fiction because it literally happens all the time, constantly. Like, I love seeing, it's like, I always get really excited when you see like a tomato hornworm, you know, it's like, oh no, it's going to devastate my garden. But then you can tell it's been parasitized, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like got like little white sprigs yep. just like all over it. <laughs> yep. Insects are the, the, the foundation of science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you, you said something that like reminded me, it's like you've done some really cool research when you're talking about like, you know, you can plant a flower and it'll attract some really cool pollinators, but it can also attract some other really, really cool things. So you've done some of like pollen or like wildflower research on like golf courses. Can you explain like briefly what that research was? Because that's relevant to this discussion, I think. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's see where to begin. We In Florida, we've got a ton of golf courses. Um, <laughs> golf courses are, are these vast swaths of managed green space, oftentimes dominated by turf grass. Um, and so we're, we're looking for ways to reduce the maintained acreage, reduce natural resource inputs like water, reduce pesticide inputs, reduce mowing, all these things that have a cost. Um, but we're also trying to promote biodiversity. So one thing that a lot of golf courses are doing is creating these conservation habitats in out-of-play areas on golf courses um, as a way to, to reduce those inputs, but also promote pollinators. And so we've done some work where we tried to quantify that change or the benefit for pollinator communities on golf courses, <clears throat> but also try to kind of capture other benefits of having those spaces. And golf courses are, are worried about pests because there are a variety of insect pests that cause problems in the maintained acreage on golf courses. Um, and so one question was, okay, do these flowering plants bring in, lots of wasps and predatory insects that then spill out into the maintained golf course space and eat those pests. Um, So in short, what we found is that, yep, if you put flowers on a golf course, uh, you get a lot of wasps, you get a lot of predatory beetles, you get a lot of things that eat other organisms. And that translates directly to increased predation and parasitism of 
turf grass pests, things like uh, army worms, webworms, mole crickets. Uh, and so from a golf course manager perspective, you can reduce natural resource inputs, promote pollinators, but also get these direct pest management benefits that reduce your need to manage pests in those maintained spaces. That's really cool. Yeah. And yeah, that had absolutely. a positive impact on like perception, right? Like the, the golfers, like they, did they enjoy, enjoyed having those wildflower spaces on the courses as well? Yeah. If so it's complicated, uh, but <laughs> in short, yes, that once those, pl- once those plantings are established and they start flowering and, and start to really enhance the appearance of that space, uh, the golfers love it. Um, right after we planted it and it was basically a dirt patch that had, we had just seeded. They were all wondering why we had just sprayed out and killed all that beautiful turf grass that was there. Um, but they came around to it once the plants started coming in. Like, yeah, now that's great. I see. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been involved in some projects that are similar and it's, it's amazing. You know, people definitely have a, a, preconceived idea of what a Florida landscape should look like. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm always amazed at how different it is, you know, among communities, but also just between people who are new to Florida and people who have been in Florida for a long time. Um, that, that perception piece really comes into play when we're talking to people um, in their home landscape. And one of the things that, you know, you mentioned about the creating that biodiversity kind of refuge um, in golf courses, you know, I, I talk to people a lot of times about the importance of kind of preserving habitat for insects. Um, and especially in light of some of the, you know, research that I've heard about over the last few years with declines in, in just insect populations worldwide. Um, you know, I wonder, you know, has anybody done kind of a large scale study here in Florida looking at our, our insect abundance and, and diversity and should we be worried and what can we do? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I would say, yes, we should be worried. Uh, but no, no, as far as I'm aware, nobody has done a, a kind of a comprehensive survey and inventory of biodiversity or insect abundance and diversity in the state. Um, because a lot of those studies, so there, there are several studies that over the past um, few years have really documented and demonstrated that insects around the globe are declining and have been for the past several decades. <clears throat> but those are based on these really robust data sets that go back many, many years. Mm. Um, and I'm not aware of any that exist for the state of Florida that we could do that with. Um, mm. There might be somebody out there doing that right now, but not that I'm aware of. That being said, all those studies really point to a handful of factors that are contributing to these declines in biodiversity and insects. Um, and ultimately it comes down to people. Um, Human inputs and human change to the landscape are disrupting ecosystems. So we're, we're changing the habitat. Think about what happens when you take a natural area and turn it into a neighborhood. That, that habitat's dramatically changed. And so the things that lived in that space and used it as habitat, no, most of them no longer do. Um, there are some that kind of make it through that filter, but it's a filter. So when you change that habitat really dramatically, a small proportion of the things that were living there can still live there. Other things have been displaced. Um, and then other things come in and take advantage of that new space. And in Florida, uh, I'm sure both of you are well aware we have a lot of people come into the state and a lot of our landscapes are changing really rapidly. Um, and that's something that my lab works directly in. Um, what happens when you build a urban area to the insects and plants in that space? Um, so yeah, with the rate of urbanization, 1100 people moving to Florida every day, uh, there's a lot of habitat loss going on. So we've got to figure out ways to 
kind of mitigate that by changing the way that we design and maintain these urban and residential spaces. So what what becomes that next step? You know, we, we recognize that this is becoming a, a problem or a need in research. So what are what are the specific topics that either you or some of your colleagues are working on to try to help answer these questions, to address these big needs with, you know, maybe you mentioned bio, biodiversity conservation, you know, so like what are these different things that we're trying to do to address these issues from the state within the state? So there's a, there's all sorts of, it's a very complex situation. Um, people are complex just uh we don't like to change (laughs) people don't like to change and there's also all sorts of these interconnected uh drivers and policies and perceptions and behaviors and values uh and so something i've been doing a lot more recently is collaborating with social scientists and economists to really understand what's realistic and what figure out if we can how to navigate the human space and be able to implement some of the entomology and ecology in ways that people will actually use it. Um, For me, there's kind of three overarching areas that we're working on that I, that I feel like we as in my lab and in my program can help address. Um, One is figuring out ways to, suppress damaging pests without suppressing other plant feeding insects that are using those plants. So, uh, Alyssa, you mentioned earlier aphids on milkweed. That's a good just model system example where you have milkweed that you planted so that monarchs could use that as a host. You've got aphids that very readily colonize that milkweed and reach high densities. So how do you control those aphids without controlling the monarchs? And if you extrapolate that to oak trees and shrubs and all these other plants in the landscape, they get pests on them, but also support all these beneficial plant feeding insects. How do we suppress the pests without suppressing the beneficial plant feeders? Um, So that's one area that I think we need to really Uh, advance our understanding. Um, One thing I mentioned just a minute ago is kind of aligning conservation strategies with people. So how do we actually implement these approaches in ways that people will adopt them and there will be measurable, demonstrable change? Um, Because I think as you both or probably, probably feel sometimes you can, you can talk as much as you can and tell as many people as you can about all this great work that is being done. But not everybody implements things based on what you told them. Knowledge mm-hmm. gain is not mean not behavior. Yeah. Mean <laughs> That'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and it's because there's all these barriers to behavior change, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a real barrier or it's a perceived barrier. <clears throat> yep. So I think we really need to work with people who understand people to really drive positive change. The third area that I, I feel like is we really need to continue increasing our knowledge of is um, understanding how pests and plants and the beneficial organisms that live on those plants interact with the urban environment and how those interactions translate to outcomes for ecosystem health and human health. Um, and when you get into cities, There's a lot of socioeconomics that tie into plants and insects in the environment and really understanding this tree that has pests, what are the outcomes for that tree and how is that related to where that tree is planted and who lives around where that tree was planted. So that's the other area that I'm excited about diving into. 
I think it's a cool thing because when you're mentioning the this research, so much of what we're looking at, what we need to do in the future, isn't necessarily the what do we need to to do, but it's more of a discussion on how can we do it because it seems like when looking at these woes or needs, so much of it comes back to social science as well. Yeah. You know, we don't always connect entomology and, you know, uh, social marketing and behavior change. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's you, not what we first jump into. Yeah. Yeah. Even just like individual personal psychology too, you know, like what, what is the, what is the motivator for that individual and how does that individual's motivation affect the motivation of the individual near them and then their whole community, right? Because people exist within nested systems and each system is connected to another and there are pivotal moments in all those systems where you can affect change. So yeah, I, I find it completely, honestly, that's the reason why I'm in extension because extension is the work that kind of acts as that bridge between knowledge and action and, and how do we build those bridges and encourage people to use them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so I love that you pointed that out, Alyssa, because that's that's why I'm an extension too, um, and that's really why I do what I do is because I feel like I have an opportunity to actually have drive a positive change um, with people in the environment. Um, one thing I didn't mention earlier is that my my uncle, my mom's brother, was a career long county extension agent. Uh, oh, cool. And he started as a agent one and worked his way up to a extension direct, a county director. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like I've kind of merged my aunt and uncle, the science <laughs> and the extension. Um, but it's, yeah, it's because I feel like it's a real opportunity to connect with people and bridge that gap between the, the research and the application of it. Uh, well, Adam, I really enjoy talking to you. I love... I love bugs. I love insects. I love I love learning how they interact with um, with plants. And we've been kind of we've been asking some of our guests as kind of a wrap up, you know, just kind of summarize, like, what are the kind of key takeaways that you want to get across to our audience? Like from an entomologist perspective with the research that you do, you know, is there one or two things that you really want people just to kind of take away about insects in Florida? Two takeaways. Uh, so I, I think one thing is to be mindful of how your actions might affect things living in the space where you live. So I think residential landscapes are a good example of <clears throat> a space that you can easily manipulate and easily add things to and have an effect on the things that live in those landscapes. So the next time you go to mow your lawn or prune a plant or spray a plant with a pesticide or fertilize a plant um, or go to the your local garden center and pick a plant to install in your landscape, um, think about how that action might affect something that lives in your landscape currently or might live in your landscape after you put that new plant there. Uh, because the design and composition of the plants in that landscape directly influence the conservation value of that space. And the more neighborhoods we build, the more important each home's conservation value becomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. All right. And then very last. So we, um, we also would like to ask and, and I don't know if you have one or not. Do you have a favorite insect? So, so I have I have a couple of favorite insects, but I'll give you one, uh, and that is a mole cricket. I I just wanted to say that no one can see it, but you have the best poster behind you. It's the anatomy of a mole cricket, and I just love that. I want to know where you got that. You, I'll, I'll ask you later. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's fabulous. Oh my gosh, they're, yes. they're little diggers. They're just like mole crickets are incredible. Mole crickets are absolutely incredible organisms, uh, and in many cases they are pests. Um, but that's largely because they're they're pests where they are invasive 
organisms. So in Florida, we have three invasive species of mole cricket um, that came came in on ships in the early 1900s and then uh, basically spread from the port that they came in on up near Jacksonville, Georgia. And these things tunnel through the soil like a mole, as their name suggests. They've got these crazy digging forelegs, uh, but they can also fly. They can jump straight up out of a five gallon bucket. Um, <laughs> if you throw one in the middle of a pool, it'll float and swim out as fast as it can. They're great swimmers and incredibly hydrophobic. Uh, and there's a really cool history of parasitic wasps and parasitic nematodes that attack these things um, and have been introduced to Florida and successfully suppressed the invasive populations over the past 40 years. That's really cool. So neat. I have found that if you want to get if you want to get undergraduates or kids or master gardeners interested in insects, entomology in general, bring some live mole crickets and hand them one. And you'll have them, you'll have them hooked because these things are crazy. That's great. That's so great. Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for taking your time today to hang out with us. And uh, the research that you do is unbelievably valuable. And um, as an extension agent, you're a great resource for us at the county level. And um, so thank you so much for the research. Thank you so much for taking your time to hang out with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for the compliments and thank you for the opportunity to do so. I enjoyed talking with y'all. Thank you for joining us today on Cultivating Curiosity. Join us each month as we explore the fascinating world of plants. For more information on today's topic, check out our webpage and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. My name is Taylor. And I'm Alyssa. Stay curious with us.